0: and the dirt soon to be the beauty and the jewel of the earth pure just like a good invention made with the best intentions envy of all creation we were made in His image breathe into his nostrils creation at its finest who needs the commandments when you were made righteous oceans so deep he made mountains the highest but what other creation can say they're made in his likeness who is this it's humankind the purest relationship you'll ever find. Until something came to deceive us, told us what could be wise. Said that this whole time we've been sitting here blind. He said you couldn't do what? You really want to know why? You think it's because he loves you? The guy that you love lied. What's he really keeping from you? Said that you'll surely die. Why don't you take a bite? This will open up your eyes, and it did. Now with eyes wide open. The lens of the innocence has now broken, disobeyed the word that was spoken. Yes, we were deceived, but we still chose it. Who told you you were naked? Tell me why you were hiding. Did you go bite the fruit after I said don't bite it? I said it was forbidden. It wasn't for the sake of a threat. It was for your sake, so you wouldn't know death. Now you do, and that was all that we do. We sin like we're trying to show God he's a fool to think we could ever be grateful. You had to know the people you created would turn around and betray you. Listening to a serpent, knowing too well we shouldn't. Instead of being the leader, bite a fruit and blame the woman. Kill your brother, leave the body, and you say you're not his keeper. Get a man's wife pregnant and hide the husband in secret. And then you sent a flood to the earth (laughs) to restart what you made from the dirt, God. And I know that it hurts because it really seems like we came back worse than you gave us commandments knowing we won't be faithful. Gave us the rules and we turn around and break them. Wow, so much for creation, made in your image but are we still your favorite? How far we've fallen from grace. Nothing left now but to fall on our face Repent from our ways Try to turn back time We were in paradise But our all was replaced like that Just like that but tell me there's a way we can get that back. Tell me there's a way to restart, get us back from the dark. Put us back at your heart where we used to be at. Cause if the flood can't cleanse us, then what can? And if I still got dirt, tell me what chance do we have on the day of the wrath when I stand before God? Can somebody tell me what then? What sacrifice could I come with? All I could say. There's nothing, not a thing I could say that could save me. Just stand there and wait for my judgment. But I heard there was one man that came to fulfill God's plan and to tell the whole world there's no way you can save yourself from your sin, but the Son can I said, I heard there was one man that with his blood he can do with the flood. Kids that can see every single transgression that you have, still look you in the face and say, What sin? What sin? What flaw? What past? What scar? What grave? What law? I'll take them all. What price? cost. Everything was left on that cross. So you doubt what for. Your sins were many, but God came down to redeem us, sent a savior and named him Jesus. Said he's going to die, but he's coming back and he'll give us life if we just believed him. But when he died, there looked like there was no hope. Because for days, the Messiah was a no-show. But how'd you make it out the tomb? It was closed, though. See, the devil thought he had him, but he rose, though. He rose, though. My God rose, though. But why you bled there for me, I just don't know. But he did, and his love is amazing. So the only thing left is to praise him. But it's crazy, because we didn't see. Some of us act like we still don't believe But geez, the king was hung from a tree How much blood could he bleed? How much proof could you need? But it's blindness of the heart It's not in the eyes We could have been there for the healing of the blind And see the sea split but we still would deny Still see the tomb and say it's not true Like show another miracle Cause this is not proof But Jesus, my stock is in you If you did not raise I'll gladly die a fool I'll be the laughing stock The butt of the joke They linger on science I linger on hope I linger on faith You took the curse for me They bet their life I bet my eternity That you are who you say you are And that tomb was vacant, cause if he died, that's only a funeral. But because he rose, that's a celebration. So it's not a threat, it's an invitation. It's not a have to, it's a get to, to believe that you came to redeem us for forever the way we were meant to. So I look at the tomb, and I say he has risen indeed. So tell me, do you believe? Then lift your voice and sing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Forever.
1: I graduated high school in 2002, uh, along with my wife, Kyra, in South Bend, Indiana. Anybody here from the Midwest area? We have a few transplants from people moving down. The Midwest is where all the best John Hughes films came out in the early 90s. Uh, Colin knows what I'm talking about, the Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and that's our mark on the world, That's Midwesterners. That's about all that I got, that, and the Chicago Bulls are pretty cool from the 96-97 playoffs. but, but my wife and I, uh, we, we grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and we graduated in 2002, which is 17 years ago. It's kind of a, a, a nightmare when you wake up one day and you, and you graduate 17 years ago. It feels, uh, you feel very irrelevant uh, in some ways um, when you try and, and, and talk to people at, at, at the methodicals. You know what I'm saying? You're down there, you just want to connect, and they're like, I was born in 2002. Get out of my bubble right here. Um, but graduated uh, 17 years ago, and, uh, and, and, and actually, my, my mom, Marsha, who's here, everybody saw I had a Marsha there, that's my mom, sweet lady, uh, she was there, of course, in South Bend, Indiana, along with uh, my Winnie Cooper, Kyra, Kyra Crotella at the, at the time, we went to Clay High School, and I had my mom bring the old yearbook pictures out, it's always trouble, you never get out of that, you start opening the yearbook pictures, and the stories start going, and you're like, man, it's like, that was so long ago. I thought, I thought I was cool. I thought I was still pretty young, but I'm not. And so uh, you get into it, and there's lots of those emotions, and you're reading uh, all these people, writing the dumbest stuff, and you're just hoping that somebody else isn't reading the dumb stuff that you wrote at the end of the, at your yearbook, like, don't ever change, we'll be best friends forever for life. You know, all these people that you just don't know anymore. And so um, anyways, uh, I'm going through the yearbook. I brought a couple of pictures. Y'all want to see a couple of... Uh, Old school. Let me, let, me, let me take the millennials in the room back in time really quickly, okay? Let me take you back when John Hughes, this is what John Hughes is really about. So let me just co- throw a couple pictures up here where we're at. Uh, I'll, I'll just kind of go through. Okay, okay. So that's called the uh, Nissan Altima, all right? So that's uh, turquoise green. You can't see it because it's sepia tone, black and white. Uh, but uh, that, that car my mom uh, got for me um, or paid like half and half. I think we kind of split the difference there. And, uh, and Chris Rock always called it the Altima. It wasn't the Altima, it was the Altima. And that thing was my jam. I mean, you can't hear it, but I can hear through the page Dave Matthews' Ants Marching just banging through the subpart uh, sound system that's in there. And the person uh, in, the, in the middle there, out of the sun, that's Kyra right there. That's Kyra Cretella. Not Kyra Wong, Kyra Cretella. And that is junior year. And it says, showing their colonial pride, our juniors, Oliver Wong, Kyra Cretella. Whoa! And one of the two cars, that, that was my car. That was the Ultima. That's what I rocked, the sea green Ultima from 94. Uh, that was about junior year, so I was like 19. That was like 2000. All right, next slide. So uh, here is, uh, that's him. That's, which one's me? Which one is it? That's me right there. Time flies. That is the Asian right there. All right, that's Jared Robleski. He was always in my locker, but you know they do in alphabetical order. Uh, so I was on the yearbook staff, and I, and I pulled in a big fish that year. You know you got to raise money to get the yearbook going because those things aren't for free. They're, you know, they don't only cost 20 bucks like the kids pay for them. So I, went to, I scored the TGI Fridays. I got Fridays on board at Clay High School, and so they gave me a big old picture of that. So that was me. All right, next, next picture. Uh, let's see. We'll tell a couple stories here. Uh, hey, the babe. Hey, the fox. Hey, there she is. Wow. Daniel Croft, I I always got nervous about those two guys next to her in the locker. That Drew Kramer character, if you're listening, shouts out. Love the Dave Matthews band, as I told you, and they got me. Those are called baggy cargoes. I don't know. You guys know what those are? They don't do those anymore. We didn't do skinnies back then. The choker necklace, that was really cool. Trust me, it was. All right, next slide. Uh, What we got? What we got? What we got? Oh, okay, some of my buddies. um, I went to high school with, you know, you go to high school with people and you think you're the same, and then they're way smarter than you, and they accomplish something, and they end up on the Today Show, and you're like, what? So Kashif, uh, first, I don't have enough time, but I'll just tell you that I can't score a ping-pong point on Kashif Sheikh. He can score with his left hand underneath the table. He has a statue in, the, in his closet. This And he's the best ping-pong player i ever played. Great tennis player. And Kashif was on the Today Show because he successfully Uh, uh, held a surgery to restore a decapitation. A guy, like, internally, like, got decapitated. And Kashif's on the table, he's like, I just want to thank the EMT. They did their job. They got him to the hospital on time, and I just fixed it. And I'm like, what are you doing?! What am I doing with my life? Okay, so that's Kashif. There he is. Awesome. All right, next slide. Guy Moracle. Guy Moracle, geometry teacher from the sixth period. Carla, Kayla, Carla, Kayla, Kurla. Can never say Kyra's name. Kyrie, Kayla, Carla, Kyle, Kyle. What's number four? That's Guy Moracle. Spent a lot of time with him. Good dude. Casper Dan uh, got me fired. He's the reason why I became a history teacher. He would stand on his desk. He was the original Dead Poet Society. He would just kill it. Uh, there in the two-hour American history class, I would sleep through all the other classes, be wide awake for American history for two hours as block schedule. And uh, I think we got one more. Yeah, my man Dean... Uh, Dean right. you ever have a guy in high school, this is kind of like everybody has, like the, the guy who's like 18, but he acts like he's 40, like why did he have a coffee, like why did he have a cappuccino in the New York Times every morning, like he rolled in the class, this is Dean on the left-hand side, and I think this guy's name is Sean, but I can't remember, uh, but they were the thugs, and these guys were, these were it, these were what she wanted to be, I wasn't there, you understand, like they were my superiors, I just want to let you know, I was, I'm not looking down, I'm looking up here, uh, and I think that's about it, oh last but not least in part of my sermon uh, this morning is Mrs. Short, she was a man, she was a chemistry teacher. She was tough. She, I, I wanted so bad, and I didn't care if I failed all the other classes. I wanted to get an area class because she told me that I couldn't do it. And that's that stinker, if, if on the last day she would go around and before progress reports write up the different uh, letters like what you what you had before you could print stuff out and she wrote down on my thing I wanted to get an A in her class and the very end of the year is like May and I was watching it she wrote down an A minus and then wrote squeak on it like I just squeaked on an A minus I was like you know what Mrs. Short let me tell you what one day I'm gonna preach on Easter about you and bless you you know what I'm saying so I uh, got her the last laugh yeah four years, guys. You're in, you're in high school for four. freshman, what? So, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. 1999, I had the four-year book stacked up. You're there for four years, and it feels like forever when you're in high school. Like, like, like everything slows down, and you can remember, I can remember so many stories. I mean, I could go through that yearbook and tell you each and every person's name and what they were doing, and I could, like, remember everything, and everything was slowing down. And, and, and it's like, the, the, the four years back then seemed like it moved in slow motion. It, it's so funny that, as an adult, how much time flies, like 4 years so so I'm thinking about like from 2009 until uh 4 years later 2000 and th- uh, uh or yeah 2013 was around my like teaching career I can't remember anything I'm like I don't know I wore khakis every day I had a bell ringer at the beginning of class like we had a few kids like it's a fog like I can't remember anything but I can tell you the year I'm like 1999 I remember the Jordan was doing it and I had to 2000 I remember 2001 when the twin towers fell and I was in girl class I can remember every single thing because everything matters so distinctly in high school, because when you're in high school, you can't see beyond high school. In high school, everything matters and only things that matter are in high school. It's the girl that broke up with you. It's the prom king. It's the prom queen. It's the shot you missed. It's the football king. And you remember it. It still even defines you. And you're just like, it's just four years. But it seems like it, it, it impacts you for all of history or all of your, your, your time and, and, your, and your testimony. Like those four years can matter so much because you're, you're you're kind of a prisoner to the moment. You can't see life beyond high school. When he, when he breaks up with you, you're like, that's it. That's it, I'm gonna, that was my, that was my one, that was my that was my husband, that was my Noah Calhoun, and you know, I'm never gonna get I'm never gonna get married. That was my heartbreak. It's like forever, I'm gonna love you forever. And then it's like you know, three years later, you don't even know the person anymore, and, and time kind of moves on. But high school feels like time has has stood still. And 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 when and when we lose sight of of days like today, when we lose sight of really the, the whole idea, as Timothy was talking about earlier during the worship set, the whole idea of the resurrection. We we become a prisoner of the moment in a way that we don't see that we are not finite beings, we're infinite beings and, and 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 God has put time and space in our heart. Ecclesiastes three says that eternity is in man's heart and woman's heart. Ecclesiastes three talks about the Chinese that made like terracotta soldiers and the Egyptians that would embalm people, you know, in, in the tombs. Like 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 we we long and, and desire to live into eternity, but oftentimes we get stuck in the moment and stuck in the now and we can't imagine something past the here. And the now and and so Paul, this, this apostle, this prophet, this person who saw Jesus with his own physical eyes, um, he went around planting churches. and In one of the books uh, called the Book of Acts, he uh, he stops and starts this church in Corinth, where um, these people that weren't Jewish, they were uh, part of a market mercantile society, started this new church, and uh, and he leaves. And so the church kind of gets starts, started under his care, and Paul writes this letter back to them called the, the, the Letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, which I'm going to be reading from this morning. And, and he's speaking to this Corinthian church um, because the church, uh, a lot like some of, some of us and, and some of us in different seasons, the church believes in the gospel that he was preaching but can't let it kind of sink in and saturate into who they are you know what i'm saying like like when the when the when the faith becomes a theological construct and it becomes a a, a bumper dash you know like a bumper sticker or a dash you know, hood ornament, and it becomes a Bible on the nightstand. It becomes something that you just profess, and you just kind of do it through the motions to go to Easter, like, like it was this resurrection thing that was in their mind, but it didn't sink down into their heart. It didn't saturate, saturate into, their, into their belief system, and he, and he writes this letter, and, and, and it's a very worldly context. In a lot of ways, he's saying in all the different parts of 1 Corinthians, if you read it, he's like, you guys are in church, but you act like the rest of the world, the rest, the rest of the world acts the way that you do. He has to talk to them about like crazy sexual promiscuity that goes on in the church and crazy social injustice and poor versus rich in the church and crazy disorder and disorganization and a lack of respect for authority and unity. And it's, it's like he has to talk to them about this stuff. And he's basically in the theme of the letter saying, don't allow the gospel to get stuck in a fragmented way in your head and not make, it way, make its way to your heart. Don't allow the gospel not to be real. Don't allow it to be a sermon on a Sunday. Don't allow it to just be a, a thing you get dressed up for once a year. The gospel is either everything or it's nothing. That Easter is either every day or it's no day at all. Easter Easter is either all the time or it's none of the time at all. He's that polar on it. He's that black and white. And so at the end of the book in, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we're getting to here, he, he finds the linchpin, really, of what it is that they don't believe what it is that they have allowed to be optional, what it is that they haven't looked at in the face and demanded a verdict out of their heart. And and he he talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the topic of the resurrection. It's the concept of eternity. It's the way they see time and the way they see their life. Because they don't see the bigger perspective, because they're a prisoner of the moment, because they can't see beyond the right here and now, they can't see that there's a bigger story, a bigger narrative, a bigger thing going on, they get stuck in the moment. They become a slave to, to the people around them, to the, to the appetites of their flesh. They become a slave to the, the, the here and the now, and they lose perspective of eternity. And he preaches to them in this way, and this is, this is what he says. He says in verse 12, he says, If Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, meaning if the tomb's a real place and a real person, if it's not like Santa Claus, like if it actually happened, then everything should be different. If he raised, if the tomb is empty, life is different. He says, the Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he says in verse 14, this is the linchpin of, of faith is what, P, what Paul is saying. And if Christ has not been raised, it says the whole house of cards really falls apart. If Christ, if the tomb is not empty, then none of this matters. We should all just go home. We should all go, go watch golf. We should all just go spend our time elsewhere. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, listen, is in vain. It's vanity. It's, it's just us dressing up, putting our makeup on. It's just us trying our best to do better, to live a good life, to raise our kids the right way. If, if Christ is not raised, Christianity is vanity, and, and faith in it, incompleteness is, is, all, is all vain. It doesn't... It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any substance. He says actually at the very end of, of 1 Corinthians 15, he says then if Christ didn't, didn't raise up, we should just blend in with the rest of culture. And in fact, he's indirectly saying that's exactly what the Corinthians church is saying. You, you, you go to church, you, you kind of do the thing, you go through the motions, but nothing really computes into your every ordinary life. Easter's just a day. It's just a, a kind of ordeal that you do, but it's not something that saturates into every moment and every day and every story, as we heard up here, um, for all, all of time. And he says, this is what we should do then. Then we should just... Eat, drink, and be merry. That's is Dave Matthews Band song, if you guys have ever heard the song Tripping Billies. But this is where it comes from, this biblical thing. It actually, it's mentioned four times in the Bible, once in the Old Testament through um, Solomon as he wrote, wrote Ecclesiastes. But this, it's called an Epicurean mindset. It's, it's, it's this thing from Greek mythology, which these guys were very versed in Greek culture in the Corinthian church. This mindset that, that tomorrow doesn't matter. We're, gonna, we're all just organisms, we're all just creatures, and, and we're all just kind of time and space and big bang and blob, and we all don't really have a purpose, and so if there's no higher purpose, and there's no eternity, and there's no eternal life, then why would we be here? Why, why eat, drink, and be merry? Eat, just, just enjoy life. He's saying, he's saying to them, listen, if, you don't, if, if you're unsure, if, or if you're not Tethered and stapled. If your faith isn't secure and anchored to this idea of the resurrection, then don't waste an hour every Sunday to come come to church. You'd have a lot more peace running on the Swamp Rabbit Trail. You wouldn't have to drag the kids out of out of bed. There's plenty of parenting advice. He's saying, "Listen, there's plenty of places that can tell you great things about how to raise a family. There's plenty of places that can that can help you." Move out of addiction. There's plenty of place. There's Listen, the church is not the only place to find good people with good morals and good community. You can find great community at the gym. Great community at the gym. Sometimes they're even more real, you know, than church. Like, it's, it's easier to get connected in, in some place like that. He's like, listen, if that's your faith, just don't waste your time. Life is short. Go to Vegas. Get a bucket list. Get moving. Go do something if Christ isn't risen. It's vanity. It's all makeup. It's all suits. It's all polyester and, 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 and seersucker, it's all fake. It's all, it's all vain if Christ didn't raise. But he says, if he, if he raised, everything is different. This is what he says. Four, if the dead are raised, the linchpin of our faith is if the tomb is empty. If the tomb is empty, then Christ has been raised. And, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, if Christ If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are only people that should be pitied. Uh, Paul didn't live a life that was kind of on the fence either or. Like if heaven exists and heaven is real, then I win both ways. But if heaven isn't real, I'm still enjoying my life and I'm having abundant life, even if I don't have eternal life and I'm living life to the full. And And he doesn't say I live on this on this fence. He says the tomb doesn't let you live on the fence. It's either real or it's not. It's either empty or it's closed. And if the tomb is closed, then don't waste your time with the religion and don't waste your time with the effort because it's not getting you anywhere. It's just talk. It's not power. He's like, I'm putting my money on the resurrection. I'm living my life in a way, as Darrell was talking about in the verse earlier, I'm putting my life on the line here that if, that if Christ isn't real, I'm a fool. I'm the idiot that followed along the guy who said he was, he was God. And actually, I actually believed him. He's like, I'm living my life up in the middle of the night. I'm persecuted beyond belief. I'm scorned. I'm scum of the earth. I have ill repute. I'm of bad reputation. And I'm living my life in a way that if he is not risen, then my life is vanity. And so he says that the tomb is not just one thing. It's not a bonus round. It's not extra lives at the end of Mario. It's everything that Easter is every day or it's nothing. It's everything or it's nothing. This is what he says. This is the whole linchpin of the faith in verse 50. So it says, I tell you, brothers, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall be changed. I don't know if you guys have ever um, just zonked out, you know, on Sunday and just fell asleep for like four hours. Isn't that just like the best? You just take a crazy, especially when you have kids, man, Boy, man, nothing like a nap. Somehow it's like when you're a kid, you don't want to take naps. And now if your parents were alive and they told you to go to your room and just go take a nap, you'd be like, thank you so much, because that would be, be incredible. Um, I've never been, I've never been like knocked out before for surgery. Like I've never had like a, like where they put you under and anesthesia and all that stuff. Like I've never had that before, but they say you just kind of go black <laughs> And it feels like you're talking, and one minute you're and then you're gone. And it's just black, you know? And there's not, like, horses everywhere and ponies. I mean, maybe, maybe for some people. I don't know. But, but most people, they just, they just, it just blacks out, just completely black. And, they, and then they wake up again. And, and, I, don't, and I don't know if, if that has ever crossed your mind before. Like, you kind of wonder, like, is, is that really, maybe, is that all that there is? I mean, we wouldn't say that in church, you know? We wouldn't say that in small groups but all of us have our, our doubts and all of us have our moments. And, and, and Paul's saying like what we think about that and how long we let that moment linger and how long we actually maybe secretly saturate in that more than the gospel, more than the resurrection. Maybe I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe the tomb isn't empty. Maybe, maybe I'll just figure it out. And then, and then backwards backwards of that, If you're not sure the security of salvation, the security of of eternal life, the security that that no matter what, death has no sting and it has no hold on me, that death's dead according to the resurrection. If that that linchpin is is taken out from under you, whether you say it and vocalize it or verbalize it or not, what you believe about what happens after the flatline, when the darkness hits you, what you believe about that affects everything before that moment. And whether we're thinking about it and talking about it, it matters to us because we're scared to death of death. And we're talking about and thinking about death all the time even though we're not talking about it because it holds us, it pins us, It says you're stuck here. It says that person's opinion is gonna define you. It says that whether this works or not, this life, if you don't live it to the best of your abilities, it's it's gonna be wasted. It's gonna be a vanity. So you better start living now. You better go earn your keep. You better go make your way. You better go establish yourself. And now, instead of your life being defined by life and defined by the tomb and defined by freedom, it's now being defined by the black space that's just gonna meet you. And all of us, when we get to that time, we will all meet to that place. And Paul says, I'm not leaving it. Happenstance. I'm not leaving it to the whim of my emotion. I'm leaving it to the empty tomb. I'm leaving it to what I've seen and what I've experienced as an apostle. I'm leaving it to the historical evidence of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you. I sent this um, verse a little bit later to, to Becca back there, but I want to read to you just a, a brief passage. We're not going to talk about the passage. I just want to help you see some of the historical nature of this, this book, Luke chapter three, starting in verse one. I'm just going to read this to you. So just catch what I'm saying here. It says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who's a real guy in history, like you can go back and look at the different governors and the different you know, subordinates that are all in the government system in Rome. He's like, this is, this is the guy that exists. His name is Tiberius Caesar. He's a real guy, Pontius Pilate, real guy in history, being the governor of Judea and Herod, being the Tetrarch of Galilee. These are historical accounts. They look at the book of Luke like its history. Historians will look at this as one of the other canons, you know, not canons rather, but historical archives and ways that we think about the past. Like the same way we know that George Washington was president of our country. We've never met him today, but we have historical documents. That's the same kind of history that Luke's doing here. As a matter of fact, he starts off his book in the beginning of Luke, and and he says, uh, dear you know, Thophilus, I, I've, I've gone to give a written account that's accurate. Like, that was his goal, was not to prove something. It was to, invo- it was to bring out accuracy for the readers, to collect all the details. He was a physician, and he was detail-oriented that way. And so he's, he's, he's listing these. Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, real guy, Tetrarch of the region of Aetorea. I can't even pronounce it, but it's a real place. You can go look it up. And, and Trachonitis, which sounds like a disease. That's kind of crazy. And uh, Lysanias, and Tetrarch of Alb. Albaline, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and, and, um, and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, son of Zeph. These are all real people, real events. And real- These are historical things. This is a historical book. Like sometimes we think of Jesus as a fable. You know what I'm saying? He's got that feathered hair, and he looks like he uses Pert Plus, and he's, and he's just always kind of wafting around. And that's fine, but he's a real person. Like, historically speaking, there was some debate for a little bit of time in the modern era of whether or not he really existed in the way that he did and whether or not. But, but that, all that is gone now. Like, new historical evidence has proven he existed. He, he lived on this earth. And he claimed he was God. And he was, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was killed. At the hands of R- Roman persecution, it was clear, it's analog. It's cataloged, it's, it happened in history. What we do with that is up to us, but, but it happened in history. And there's debate and lots of, you know, argument. Billy Graham said, if I wanted to attack the Christian faith, the number one thing I would hit is the resurrection. Did it happen or not? Because it's the linchpin of the whole thing. The resurrection is the tomb. I want to know about the tomb. Is the tomb empty? And there's, deb- there, you know, of course there's going to be lots of circulation speculation, but the argument, if you look at it, and we don't have time to go through it all, it's not very strong. Like, you understand that the people that crucified Jesus, if they botched it and lost the body somehow, they would have been crucified. And if it was the wrong tomb and they needed to go and find it, which is one of the theories, they would have found it out. And if it was a dream and a hallucination, then 500 people wouldn't all have eyewitness accounts of this thing going on. There were so much stakes against getting this message out that they would have done everything they could to keep it in, but yet it got out. And, and, and the apostles, all of them, the ones that saw Jesus paid the price for their testimony, all of them died gruesome deaths, boiled in water, and, and hung and, and, and on a cross upside down some of them, if they were just out for a, for a laugh, for a kind of a, a political upheaval. I mean, it's, it's your choice, it's your decision, it's evidence that demands a verdict is what the book is, you know, one of the books is, is called, that helps to, to, to talk about some of this stuff. But... But the point is, it's not a fairy tale. It's not St. Nick on the rooftop, clickety-click-click. Click. It's a thing that happened in history that demands a verdict. It demands our attention. And it's either full or it's empty. And Paul is saying, I'm not going to sit on the fence and ride, ride it out to the end. I'm thinking about eternity now. I'm not thinking about it later. And this is our, uh, kind of the sermon in a sentence that I would have for us. This is what I, what I want to tell us, is that if the tomb is empty, listen, and what you experience when that doctor puts you, puts you under to do an operation, that's all you've got. If the tomb isn't empty, don't be here. If the tomb isn't empty... There's lots of other ways to live your life in much more fulfilling and exciting and adventurous ways. There's lots of things to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying if, if the dead are not raised, I would be the first in line to go do that. But something in my heart, something convicted in my spirit and something in my mind that has not checked my brain at the door when I went to pursue my faith feel, and feels and knows that the resurrection is real, that the tomb is empty, and it, changed, it has to change everything about my life. I can't allow it to be neutral. I can't be neutral towards this thing. That tomb, The tomb is empty. And the, and the, and the Christian faith, which, which started in a little town in Jerusalem against strong opposition, has spread itself throughout the world. In persecution and under persecution for years, what you do with that is your decision, but ultimately it's evidence that demands a verdict. the tomb is either closed or it's open and empty, and what that thing says to us matters greatly for every day of life, not just what we do, the, so many days after the moon uh, comes out, and we, we decide which Sunday is Easter. If the tomb is empty, then death is the end, then flat line is the finish line. But if the, if the tomb, excuse me, if the tomb isn't empty, then death is the end, but if, if tomb is empty, if resurrection is real. If he's a real guy from a real place who really was the Son of God, who died on the third day and suffered, and the tomb is empty, you have some processing to do. We have some reorienting to do. It's either everything or it's nothing. Easter's every day or it's no day at all. Death would just be the beginning then, and eternity would be the portion. This is the way that he explains it, not eat, drink, and be merry. This is is Paul's mantra. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? If the gospel were to saturate our lives, if the resurrection were to mean something, if it was real and not just a theory, a theological construct, if it wasn't, if it wasn't just a, a sermon, if it was a story, if it was my life, if it was all the time, it would mean something. If, if the finish line is the flat line and all I have at the end of my life is black, it's just long sleep. Then everything that happens and everything that I do would, would, would make me a slave to it. In high school, if I, if I make the jump shot, if I miss the jump shot, if the girl says yes, if the girl says no, it would, it would make me a slave. It would own me. It would define me. But see, what Paul is saying is that is that death, after Christ rose from the dead, one of the past, we don't have time to read, what happened is, is that death was put under Jesus' feet, and everything else was put under the authority of Christ, and, and death can't hold us down, and can't, death can't be over us anymore, because now Christ is over everything else, and he came up out of the ground, and so he's taking us spiritually and physically up out of the ground now and at the end of our life. This is what the gospel comes to say, is that, is that Jesus didn't come to just make Bad people, good. He came to make the dead people come alive. You know that. He, you know, the, the, the resurrection was, was the beginning, the catalyst of the whole movement. When Jesus died on the cross, the first Good Friday wasn't very good. Nobody was at the tomb like 10, 9, 8, 7. They were all back to work. It was over. Nobody was saying, oh, man, he just preached so well. I mean, he was killing it. I mean, remember when he was on that Sunday and it, and it made all, all the sense and he, he lined it up philosophically for us and scientifically for us. And he brought us this this new way of life to die for our enemies. You know, like nobody was following that. Man, he loved us so much. He just died for us. If he's still on the ground, there's no church. Peter was back to work. He was done. He had he, he was embarrassed. There goes three years. Let's let bygones be bygones, man. Everybody's got a rough past. That was my story. Remember that time I followed that guy who said he was God? That was bad. I hope, hope the in-laws don't figure that out. Like, like that's the kind of thing that he, he was trying to leave behind him. And Mary shows up, and, and they, she thought that Jesus was a gardener. And the tomb, when the, when the tomb opened, this is what they said to each other when they first got started. Not like, what would Jesus do? It wasn't like, Jesus loves you. You know what they would say when they, when they would see each other on the street, when they would greet each other in homes and in temples in their daily rhythms of life? They would say, he's risen. Every Sunday was Easter. They would say, Jesus is Lord. You know, like all the stuff that tries to hold you captive and define you, defining moments, whether I get the job, whether I get hired, whether I get promoted, the things that keep you up at night, the things that, that, that hold you, like Jenna was saying, that hold you in the prison of panic, I got peace there instead. You know why? Because it's not the final word. Death doesn't have sting anymore. There is no, death is not the end anymore. The flat line is not the finish line anymore. I got a whole life in front of me. I have have eternity to think about. And so it demands a verdict. Either that thing is empty or it's it's closed. If the tomb is empty, then death is the end. But if the tomb isn't empty, then death is the end. But if the tomb is empty, then death is just the beginning. We always have a question to, to take home, to apply. But our intentional question this morning, if the tomb is empty and death is the beginning, how would you live your life from here? How long, at max, what is it, American, United States, average is 78 years. I think Europe is like 83, but ours is like 78, so tough. I mean, do the math. where You got 30 more years, you know, 40, 60 more years, which goes like this. I mean, that, I know I'm an old guy talking about how time flies, but it does. Like, it goes so fast. Your kids grow up so fast. Your life is over so fast. You have a decision to let to let the flat line or the tomb define your life. You see what we're talking about. Does does the gospel saturate your life? Is it just a bunch of good ideas to live a better life or is it an opportunity to live for eternity, to to step out of this life and step into the next life and, and see ahead of you 35 million years? And when you're done with that, to live for 35 million more. Eternity is on the hearts of all of us. We try and... We try and and, and, and rationalize ourselves into thinking that it doesn't matter to us, but it does. We're all terrified of death because eternity is on our hearts and we're not made for just this. That's what happens to rich and famous and successful people is they get to the end of it and they go, is that it? Is that what was supposed to fill the eternity void in my life? Is that all that this was for? This is like my hero, you know, Michael Jordan growing up. It's like you start reading news about like his life and where he's at and he's just not happy. And, and you know this. I mean, because you in your life, you've got all this stuff that you've carried. I mean, Paul is basically talking about this perishable versus imperishable stuff. And, and, and you go in there and you're like, this all stuff is just perishable. I gave my, my divinity, my divine, human, God-reflective life to this PhD. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not enough. And then you realize death has you prisoner because your time is ticking. There's not much more time left, and the flat line is the finish line. And all you've got ahead of you is just black. And it holds you captive. We're scared to death of death. I mean, you guys have seen Saving Private Ryan. I mean, again, I'm old, so you guys might not know. But, like, you see all those young boys, right? Any war movie, it'll do fine. But, like, they're going up to Normandy, and they're on that little truck, and they've got 45 seconds before they're about to get um, blasted. By just, a, by just a buzz of machine gun fire. And it's like guys are like throwing up in their helmets. There's just, Whoa. like, I mean, they're, if you've seen it before, like all these gruesome war movies that all came out in the 90s, like, like they, they saw the impending fatality of mortality of their life, and they're terrified, and they're shrinking back in the boat because what they think about the future will impact the present. And death has a sting, It's not a cute little bee with a yellow. It's like got a stinger. It's going to sting them. And they're moving towards it, and they see the flat line coming. They see the black. And they've got to make decisions about what they're going to do and who they're going to be. And that's the question is like, do you think about this? Do you think about how short life is and how fast it goes? And how much things would hold you if you thought that this life was all there is? How much things would have to become idols because of the God-shaped eternity vacuum in our heart that wants to be significant, wants to leave a legacy that doesn't want to be forgotten, that wants to to matter, like that thing doesn't get filled with a finite life. So here's what I love. This is the quote, because I think that what we think about the, the finish line, what we think about the end affects everything leading up to it. Paul thought about it before we often do, even though we think about it without talking about it. And he says, he says this, this, this is going to change your faith. The reason why you're worldly, the reason why you're sexually promiscuous, the reason why you're struggling, you know, a, a, as a community of the gospel is because you don't get it yet. You think it's just about doing good things and trying harder. It's not about death to life anymore. And so he's saying the, the, the end of your life will define everything that leads up to it. But this is, this is a great quote by Bill Johnson. He says, the, the, the one that sees it, the one that sees it like Paul, the one that stays on board till chapter 15 to understand what it is that holds a foundational faith that doesn't allow you to become prisoner of death and circumstance and situation and socioeconomic status and, and the approval of, of man. It, it, the thing that actually gets you out of that thing is your perspective of heaven. What do you see at the other end of the flat line? What do you see? What, what do you believe? What do you believe about the tomb? Because the tomb tells you about the eternity. What do you believe about that is what he would say. And so Bill Johnson is saying, if, if you see heaven clearly... He says, you'll have very little desire for this world, but it's ironic because this is the thing, right? It doesn't say, oh, oh, oh divorce, where is your vic- victory or your sickness, where is your victory? It, says, it just says, where is death, where is your victory? Some of the times I think when we think too much about eternity, it's this escape from life. It's not escape from life, it's escape from fear and fear of life. As a matter of fact, people that have their eye on eternity are more present than the people that are stuck in the pr- prison of the present. They have more influence because their wealth is not here. They have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And so they've made the verdict in their mind. They've already decided, whatever happens, come what may, this thing is not going to define me. I'm free of this moment so I can be in this moment and I can, I can make my mark on the moment the way I was created to be. It says heaven, people that see heaven most clearly have little desire for the world, yet they're the ones that have the greatest impact on the world. What would you tell yourself if you went back to high school to free yourself of the prison of those four years, to tell you, listen, I know that that girl broke your heart in that way, but that's not going to define you. You have years after high school. What would you tell yourself? I'm not going to put up on the screen, but these are just a couple of thoughts that I think might saturate our life if we really allow the tomb to be empty and eternity to be real. In Christ, in Jesus, if if we believe that the tomb is empty, not just that we check a box on the political... Census, you know, at the end of the year, what denomination are you? But if we really do allow the gospel to saturate everything in our life, this is how you might journal in your life. I'm not going to put them on the screen because they're mine, but I wonder how the question hits you. If the tomb is empty and eternity is real and the flat line's not the finish line, what would that change about today? This is what it might change for you. This is what it changes for me. If I went back to Mrs. Short's chemistry class, I would spend less time worrying and I'd spend more time worshiping because that grade's not going to define me anymore. And if I'm living for eternity, I can move a little bit slower, and I don't have to be in a hurry for that. And the jewel of of great price, the pearl of great price, like the tested character of becoming the kind of person I need to be, I don't need to to freak out and react to that grade. I can actually receive that grade and have it not own me. I'm not blinding myself from it. It's not that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't own me anymore because death isn't my my master anymore because I'm not living for that grade. If I, if it's the grade, then it's like, my SAT score, and if I get into med school, and what if I do this, and what if I do that? And, and, and James just says, listen, don't, don't talk that way. You don't know it. The Lord has it in, in his hands. Spend time worshiping. Don't spend, spend time worrying. He gives you a prescription in Matthew 5. Hey, Jesus, can we actually live a life without worry? Is it, is it okay? Shouldn't I worry about grades? He says, no. Don't you know the lilies of the field are taken care of? Don't you know you'll live for eternity? Why does your SAT score matter? It's not that it's an escape, it's not that it doesn't matter, but the fear of the test doesn't matter in the place of worship. If I, if I allowed eternity to saturate my life every day, not just in Easter, I'd spend less time fearing others and more time forgiving and loving others. Because life is short. I met this guy one time, I asked him about his family. He said, I haven't talked to my uh, brother for like nine years. I'm like, man, you haven't talked to him like Christmas, Easter? You don't? Nope, haven't talked to him in nine years. Your brother? <laughs> yeah, haven't talked to him in nine years. Well, what happened? Man, you wouldn't believe it. He said, man, Ollie, I went over to this lake one time. I got this brand new Ski-Doo. I mean, it was awesome. I had it like four days. I got it off the truck. You know, my jerk brother got on that Ski-Doo. He just like crashed it and ruined it. Can you believe that? And I'm like waiting for the continu- continuation story. Yeah, man, I mean, he just broke my Ski-Doo. And I didn't say anything to him, but I'm thinking in my mind, so you, you're telling me that because a Ski-Doo got broken that you lost your relationship with your brother? I would dare to say we lose a relationship for, for way lesser things than that. When the flat line's the finish line, the ski doo is everything. Because my honor, and if he respects me, and whether or not I get what's due, I got to get what's mine, I got to eat, drink, and be married. This is, I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. A life that gets out of high school, a life that can see beyond the present, just says, look, it's a ski it got. We can probably water ski without any, any shoes on up in heaven. I don't know. It's a ski-do, like... Souls are eternal. Relationship is eternal. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. This is how you would change, like, other than just getting dressed up for Easter, right? I would spend less time discerning the people, uh, the opinions of people, and more time uh, discerning God's opinion of me. I'm gonna say that again. If I I allowed resurrection to saturate me, I would spend less time discerning people's opinions and more time discerning God's opinions of me. Because I... I've known enough now out of the four years of high school to know that most people that treated me poorly in high school are just acting out of their own insecurities, right? That's what we find out that hurt people hurt people. And that person that tried to define me can't define me, and they're not even here anymore. So why would I waste precious, valuable time that could affect eternity for my benefit and the benefit of others thinking about whether or not somebody liked my outfit that day? But yet I was a prisoner, yet I was a prisoner to the moment, to the prisoner of, of, of other people's opinions that the flat line must be the end of it. And if I don't get my affirmation now, if I don't get up in my status now and get the things that I need and things that I deserve right now, I'm a waste, I'm futile, I'm vain, I'm, I've got nothing, nothing to offer, I have no significance. I would spend more time asking about what does God think about me because he's the only one that's going to carry me. You know he says in, in Matthew, you know you're not even married in heaven. At the end of the day, what you do when you're alone with God is all that matters and what he thinks about you. And under the blood of Christ, may we be reminded this morning that under the blood of Christ, all he says about you is you are my beloved son and my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's the only thing that he says over you and your identity under Christ. What would a life look like if I wasn't a slave to the opinion of the person next to me? What if I was actually freed of death and the sting of their disapproval? What if I was defined by my father's word? What what would happen with me in my next 30, 60, and 90 years? It's a small vapor of time, but it matters significantly. It's not an escape from life. It's an escape from the fear and the slavery of the tyranny of now. Lastly, I'd spend more time promoting people, excuse me, less time promoting people and more time promoting the gospel. I would would beeline closer to the gospel. I'd find out the solution is always the gospel. I've got a lot of great self-help. If you guys, I've read self-help books. They're great. I've got a lot, I watch them on YouTube, you know, there's little things in there that you could do about time management, and those are all valuable things, but they're not the solution. At the end of the day, any problem that we experience in the Corinthian church, or in our church, or in our life, it all comes back to sin in the garden. It all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to whether or not I trust God is enough or not. It all comes back to whether or not I trust that his word is stronger than others. It's, it all, that's all it is. We're not waiting on a circumstantial solution. The solution's already provided in the gospel, so every one of the chapters of Corinthians ends in the gospel. That's why. Problem, gospel. Problem, gospel. Problem, gospel. Big problem, you don't believe the gospel. That's basically it. We could get there quicker if we just knew. It's the gospel. You don't need study tips. You need the gospel. That's what we're waiting on. The gospel, whether or not it saturates us. The gospel. Speaking of which, let's stand and uh, read a gospel moment. and We'll close in worship this morning. I'll invite the band to come forward. Every morning... Uh, Sunday at 10 or 11:30, we, we close with this gospel moment, and it's important to us because on other Sundays we'll talk about great things and great teachings, like about how to be more patient and how to be more um, hospitable and how to um, use our time wisely. But as Paul says, it's all vanity except for the last three minutes of our service, because it's either we believe this or not, and if we don't believe it, then none of that stuff matters and none of that stuff works. And we're just good people trying to be better. We're just, we're just bad people hopefully becoming good, looking up to somebody that's better than us that we could grow and become better like they're better. That's, that's what it becomes without this. And so I think on any morning, let alone this morning, that this message is so important and girding for us. This is what we've been talking about all morning, the gospel. This is what we need to rush to quicker. And this is this, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to bring us, not from bad to good, but from spiritual death into spiritual life. The Ephesians is one of the other books that Paul writes he's he's just saying that the core of it like we're always going to be broken and longing wishing for the next success thing or the next you know good feeling moment I don't know what it is for you like the next adrenaline rush we're always going to be looking for something because we're trying to fit and fill something in our heart that only God can fill. And so that's what he calls spiritual death. It's like weekend at Bernie's, you know, you dress them up, you put the sunglasses on, the different outfits, but they're still dead is what they're saying on the inside because, because there isn't that life, there's something deeper. Don't you ever feel like there gotta be something deeper? That's what he's saying. That's you being dead, wishing there was something more life-giving. And, and so the, the gospel is that he's come to fill that. He's come to be that. He's come to fill us with a spiritual life out of spiritual death, that we couldn't save ourselves. And, and Jesus loves us and died for us for our sins so that we could have close relationship to eternity. He's powerful and he's loving. The psalmist says, two things that I know, that he's out of the tomb, he's powerful, but he's close. And he calls us each by name and he offers you a life. He says, he says, your name, on your, whatever your name is on his lips, he says, this is my life that I've given to you. I would do it just for you. I would have died just for you. I would have come up out of the tomb just for you. So you could have relationship with me in heaven, not just ski If you trust that Jesus' death is the only way to spiritual life, are you there? Are you at that place where you've tried enough? Because you could try lots of stuff. I mean, Solomon did in the Old Testament, he tried everything and found out it was all vanity. And he found out that faith without the empty tomb was vanity, just like Paul says in the New Testament. Have you found it out? Have you knocked on enough doors yet to know it's real? It's not just because your parents said so or because your wife wants you to be here or because you want to raise your kids in the right way. It's because it's real, because people really aren't satisfied without him. And so I'm coming to the only one that can satisfy me. You have to come to that place. You've got to come to the tomb, confront it, and ask yourself the question, is the finish line the flat line or is it just the beginning? you got to ask. And if it is, if you trust Jesus is the only way to spiritual life, you can receive it today just through a conversation called prayer. Just through talking to him, just asking him. It's gonna sound like this. Let's pray together. Let's pray together because we all need this. Whether it's the first time we've heard it or the last, the gospel moment, but we need your gospel, which is a good news message, not a sermon, but a celebration. It's not a day on the calendar. It's eternity with you. And we'll, 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 we'll go on forever and never learn the extent of it. And so if that's you, if the tomb is empty and you looked at the historical fact and you believe it and you see around and you have enough evidence to get the verdict that Paul is talking about, I just invite you to say the resurrection happened, let it happen in me. God, I want what, what that tomb represents to happen in me. I've been stuck for too long. I've been anxious for too long. I've been looking over my shoulder for too long. And so I don't, I don't wanna knock on any more doors. I know that your gospel is what I'm missing. And I'm not going to search anymore. I found you. And so I thank you for that garden. I thank you for the tomb that was empty. I thank you for the first audience that found it. But God, I'm not going to let them be the last audience because I want more. I want to see. And I want to know in my heart, not just in my head, in my theological positions, that you are real and you are resurrected. And if you are resurrected, then life is abundant and eternal in you. So the tomb is empty, and I declare it with my heart and with my soul this morning that I trust in you and you alone. Amen.